as you guys are getting back to your seats, if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's, a, there's one in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, like you don't own one, uh, feel free to take one of those Bibles home and get in the Word. But today, we're going to be in Acts chapter, or Luke rather, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. So I'm going to be preaching through Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And as you're turning there, just have some questions. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Kids, what's it like waiting in line to go out to recess? That can be hard. Teens, what's it like to be waiting for your best friend to come over so you guys can hang out? That too is also hard. For adults, what's it like to wait for the repairman to show up in the time slot when he said he'd come? Especially after you left work to make sure you're there when the person shows up. That can be hard. Uh, How is the wait for the thing coming in the Amazon package that you ordered and are so excited about but is now delayed? I don't know about you, but I hate waiting so much that at an intersection I find myself speeding up when the light turns yellow or sometimes when it's more reddish because I don't have time to wait for those two to three extra minutes. I live pretty close to Lincoln Southeast High School. Recently, a van stalled in the roundabout in front of our house just before school started, and there was a long backup of cars. Within a few seconds, a vehicle, 10 cars back, jumped the curb, drove up on the grass of the median, around the vehicles, then jumped back into the street. You might be surprised to know it wasn't so that they could get up front and help push the van out of the way. Nope, they didn't want to wait at all. They sped off just to let everyone know their disapproval of having to wait at all. These are easy examples to show us how hard waiting can be. But what about the hard ones? Like when you and your spouse have been trying to have a child for a long time, and it's just not happening. I remember how hard it was for my wife Kathy and I Uh, We had decided to start our family by adoption and then to have biological kids after that. Year after year, we waited, and the bank account just didn't seem to be making much progress in getting us to a place where we could adopt. We were married nine years before Gideon joined our family from Ethiopia. That waiting was brutal. For some of you, you're waiting for grown children who you raised in the church to love Jesus. And those kids have walked away from Jesus and the church and won't listen to your pleadings and to your arguments to return. Some have been waiting for decades. Brutal. For others, you have hard work situations. You just want to do your job, but your boss has it out for you and won't ever give you a break. And time doesn't seem to be doing anything to help. Waiting is hard. Waiting can be particularly hard when we are mistreated by others. Life can become unbearable and intolerable when we're mistreated by parents or our spouse or our kids, our friends, our coworkers, our employers, and in our parable today, our enemies. And more and more, those who follow Christ are being mistreated socially because they have faith in Jesus. So I ask you today, when has there been a time in your life 
when you have experienced mistreatment by someone. Maybe it's in your past. Maybe you're living it right now. Being mistreated is hard, isn't it? Especially when it's ongoing. Especially when you've tried to make it stop and it won't. I believe that as believers we are prone to discouragement and despair when we experience ongoing mistreatment. We do our best to turn the other cheek. We decide to love those who mistreat us and pray for them. We try to talk with our adversary in order to get them to stop mistreating us. When that doesn't work, we distance ourselves and we do everything we can to avoid them. But in the end, when the mistreatment doesn't stop, we throw up our hands in discouragement and despair and give up. The original audience in Luke's gospel was prone to this discouragement and despair too. Just prior to our verses this morning, Luke writes down Jesus' words about when the kingdom of God would finally come. If you skim Luke 17, 20 through 37, you'll see that Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in the midst of them, meaning when Jesus came in the flesh, the kingdom of God came too. After answering the Pharisees, Jesus pulls his disciples together and explains to them that when he returns from heaven, that's when the kingdom will be consummated and that that will happen when they're not expecting it. It'll happen when they're going about their everyday lives, like in the days of Noah when the flood came, or in the days of Lot when fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. Jesus tells them that he will return and consummate the kingdom at the blink of an eye. He wants them to always be ready for Jesus' return, because it will come without warning, and it'll be huge, and no one will miss it. That is what Jesus said to his audience in the verses preceding ours this morning. But to Theophilus, who Luke wrote his gospel account for, and the rest of Luke's original audience, Jesus had spoken those words a minimum of 30 to 40 years before. And Jesus hadn't yet returned. His kingdom wasn't yet consummated. That meant the kingdom of God wasn't fully realized Everything wasn't perfect. Sin was still present and life was hard. This made believing in Jesus and situating one's life around him hard. And not just that, there were lots of people, parents and spouses and children and friends and co-workers and employers and enemies who mistreated Christ's followers. Everything wasn't rainbows and unicorns. So when Jesus' disciples and Luke's audience and even us today experience mistreatment, what is to be done? How does the believer not fall into discouragement and despair when the mistreatment continues? Jesus tells them then and us today the answer through the parable of the persistent widow. In today's passage, Jesus, uncharacteristic of what he does in most of his parables, says exactly what the parable means. Our big idea for this morning is, Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of persistent prayer as we wait for his return. Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of persistent prayer as we wait for his return. And just to situate us in this idea of the kingdom of God, and specifically Jesus consummating the kingdom of God, let me remind you that the storyline of the entire Bible begins in the Garden of Eden 
comes to its climax in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and culminates in his return. When Jesus returns, he will bring his redemptive work to consummate reality and will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read the parable of the persistent widow, pray, and dig in. Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here's where we're headed today. I want to explain the parable at a 30,000-foot view, then focus in on the unjust judge, the persistent widow, and then bring it home by thinking about how this might apply to our lives. Sound good? Let's go. First, the 30,000-foot view of the parable. Unlike most of Jesus' parables, Jesus comes right out and tells us the meaning of the parable. Verse 1 says, And Jesus told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. As believers await the consummation of the kingdom, they are to persistently pray and not lose heart. And Jesus, to illustrate this, tells them a parable. In some random town there lived a judge and a widow, Some mistreatment and injustice has happened, or more precisely, is continuing to happen to the widow. In order to get the mistreatment to stop, the widow keeps coming to the judge to get the mistreatment from her adversary to stop by the judge giving her justice. The judge, who doesn't give a rip about the woman or about what others think about him, refuses to give her the justice that she deserves. However, after a while, the judge gets sick of the woman's persistent coming to him for justice, and so, to get her to stop, gives her what she wants because he wants to be done with her. And that, friends, is the story Jesus uses to teach his disciples to always pray and not lose heart. Seems like a weird story to encourage his followers to not get discouraged and to not fall into despair when they experience mistreatment as they await him to return. So let's zoom in a bit, taking a look at the unjust judge and the persistent widow and see what Jesus might be trying to show us here. So second, the unjust judge. He's a scoundrel. Verse 2 tells us he neither, neither fears God nor respects man. This is in direct contrast to what God expects from his judges. Look at what God says to and about judges from the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 6, 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. 
That's in stark contrast to what the judge says about himself. When God says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, the judge says, I neither fear God nor respect man. Now listen to Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Again, notice the stark contrast between what God says and what the judge is doing. Where God says do not do injustice in the court, not to show partiality to the poor or deference to the rich, but shall judge one's neighbor in righteousness, we see the judge carrying out injustice by not deciding on the widow's behalf. We see him giving partiality, in this case to the widow's adversary. And we see him choosing unrighteousness regarding the widow's situation. So it's clear he doesn't respect others. From his own words and his own behavior, we see that he isn't lying when he says he doesn't care about God or respect his neighbor. This dude is a scoundrel. It gets worse. In verse 4, when the widow comes, uh, continues coming to him to get justice, he refuses. He uses his power and position to thwart the very thing he's supposed to do, namely, to establish justice where it isn't. The widow comes repeatedly for justice, and he repeatedly refuses to give it. So we see he's a stubborn scoundrel to boot. Then in verses 4 through 5, he decides to give her justice after all. We might ask, is he having a change of heart and coming to his senses? The text doesn't say that at all. It wasn't because he came to his senses. It wasn't even because he believed her and finally did the right thing. Instead, he gives her justice because of her annoying persistence. He knows the widow will not stop, ever. Where the ESV translates the word beat me down, and the NASB and NIV translate wear me down, the more literal translation of the verb that Luke uses here is to give a black eye. The judge is so afraid that the widow will continue to persist that she will ratchet up her annoyance and either metaphorically or physically beat him down. So he caves and gives her the justice she deserves in order to be done with her. What a scoundrel. And that's the parable that Jesus uses to help us always pray and not lose heart when we experience mistreatment as we wait for Jesus to return. We'll have to unpack that further in as a bit as it, it seems weird and wrong to equate God with this unjust judge. But let's parking lot the judge for a second and turn to the widow. So third point, the persistent widow. What do we learn about her that might help us? Verse 3 tells us that she lives in the same city as the unjust judge. We learn that while she is being refused justice, she kept coming to the judge seeking justice from her adversary. The word adversary means one who is continuously antagonistic to another. This tells us that the injustice she is experiencing isn't a one-time event, but it's an ongoing situation. While her adversary is in the wrong, he is able to continually antagonize her because the unjust judge refuses to intervene. And as a widow, she is one of the most vulnerable people in the city, 
and more often than not has no one to help her or protect her and has very little resources. The only tool at her disposal is her persistence. And she's had it with the adversary and the judge. So using her persistence, she is just going to wear the judge down until he relents and gives her the justice she deserves. (laughs) And that's what she does. In time, because she is so persistent, she finally wears him down. He gives in and gives her what she wants in order to get rid of her. This widow is a bulldog. She's persistent, assertive, and won't quit, ever, until she gets what she wants, what is right, and what is deserved. Jesus uses the widow as a picture to help believers always pray and not lose heart when they are mistreated as they wait for him to return. He elevates her persistence and her unwillingness to quit. He uses her as an example of the type of attitude and behavior he desires from his followers to have when they regard, uh, to have regarding prayer when they experience mistreatment and injustice and difficulty. But doesn't that sound a little bit weird and a bit wrong? If Jesus is trying to teach us that we're always to pray and not lose heart, why this story? Kind of seems like a swing and a miss on Jesus' part. Why portray God the way that he does, as an unjust judge? Many believers today already feel like God acts like an unjust judge, only giving them what they want after they wear him down after they annoy him enough that he will reluctantly give us what we deserve. There is just something about this parable that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with us. And I don't think it should. Until we stop and think about it and see what Jesus is actually doing and saying here, I think we'll come away with some not-so-good conclusions. If we take this parable at face value, we can hear Isaac... When you're mistreated and turn to God in prayer, just be more persistent. Be unwilling to quit, ever. Keep badgering God, the unjust judge, until he relents and begrudgingly gives it to you. And always remember, God gives you this justice, not because he cares about you, but because he sees you as an annoyance and because of your persistent request to do what he's supposed to do. The validity of your concern that you keep bringing to him doesn't really matter to him. All he really wants to do is to be done with you. If you just wear him down, you'll win the day. Then finally the mistreatment will stop and he can get back to doing whatever he was doing before you barged in with your annoying, time-consuming prayers. Is that what Jesus is trying to say in this parable as he's attempting to get us to always pray and not lose heart? It doesn't make sense why Jesus would tie in our need to be people of persistent prayer as we wait for his return, especially when we're experiencing ongoing mistreatment with a God who acts like a self-centered judge who will only act on our behalf when we wear him down. Frankly, spending eternity with a God like that doesn't sound like something we're all that interested in, right? Not only does that not sound like how God reveals himself throughout scripture, but it sounds demoralizing and discouraging and will undoubtedly lead to despair. And the feelings of discouragement and despair are the very things Jesus is fighting against in our verses today. So what's going on here? 
What is Jesus trying to do here? I think we understand and can relate more easily to the widow. We feel powerless. We understand being overlooked and like we don't matter and sometimes annoyingly persistent. But persistently praying to a God who is a jerk? I'm not sure I understand the connection. Friends, these next verses are what makes this parable so beautiful and I think will empower us to pray when things are hard as we await Jesus' return. Jesus' parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge is using the how much more argument. I've practiced this pronunciation, I'm going to mess it up, called an a fortiori argument. This logical reasoning is arguing from the lesser to the greater. This is the if A, then how much more B argument. An example from Luke 12, 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So if God provides for grass, which is short-lived and doesn't have great value, how much more will he care for you, who are eternal and incredibly valuable? This is what Jesus is doing in the parable of the persistent widow. Look at verses 7 through 8. If the unjust judge gives justice to someone he despises, how much more will the God of justice give justice to those he loves? God is how much more than the unjust judge in the parable. Whereas the judge gets beat down by the widow's persistence, God welcomes our persistence when we pray. Whereas the unjust judge gives justice reluctantly, God gives it joyfully. Whereas the judge only does it after a long period of time, God doesn't delay. God is encouraging us to pray persistently, to come to him again and again when we are mistreated and when we experience injustice and when we have things that are deeply burdensome. He will not act because we are an annoying disturbance to him, but because he loves us and he loves to act on our behalf. Yet sometimes we don't understand why he acts in his timing and not ours or in the way we think we deserve. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 teaches us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has a plan, and it's for our good. And there are times when we fight discouragement and despair. It's in those times when we can choose to believe the false portrayal that God is the unjust judge or the true portrayal, that God is not only just, but also our loving Father. The false portrayal will lead us to discouragement and despair. The true portrayal will empower us to pray persistently and to not lose heart. And remember 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. It reminds us, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Could it be that God is delaying his justice in order to give our adversary the opportunity to repent and place their trust in Jesus? Again, God is how much more than the unjust judge? If the unjust judge finally relents and grants the persistent widow's request, how much more will a just God grant the request of his followers who pray to him persistently? See how the how much more argument flips the entire parable? God isn't the unjust judge, but the just and loving judge who acts on behalf of those who are his when they cry out to him day and night. It's in those times of great difficulty when we draw near to the Lord, pouring out our requests and burdens to him, that he aligns our hearts with his, and we not only feel his presence, but also experience his tender care. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And remember, friends, we are not the widow. Yes, we can be powerless and taken advantage of. We can feel like there is no one to protect us. And we do need to learn from the widow that sometimes the only tool we have at our disposal is our persistence. But we are more than that. We don't need to beg and grovel for God to act like the widow did with the unjust judge. Verse 7 tells us that we are God's elect. We aren't some random widow in some random town begging some random judge to act on our behalf. We are God's elect children. Listen to what he says about us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, we are God's elect sons and daughters. Because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we are the ones who have responded to his good news. We have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are the ones who know our need for him. And we are the ones who recognize that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, when we experience times when it feels like God is more of the unjust judge than our loving father, we need to return to these verses. In them we see the beauty of the how much more about God. But I think we can also say that of the widow. Because of Christ, you are more than the widow. You are God's elect child. Did you hear that? You are God's elect child. We need to remember that too and let that sink into our bones. So when we are mistreated and taken advantage of, when we're struggling to keep our eyes on Jesus and when we're tempted to get discouraged and despair, when the kingdom Jesus promised to bring, the kingdom that we so long for seems so far off, we're called to pray and pray some more and then keep praying with persistence knowing that the kingdom isn't functioning the way it will when Jesus comes back and consummates his kingdom, knowing that in the meantime we yearn for him to return and make all things new and to bring justice 
It's then, in that desire, in the midst of our struggles, that Jesus calls us, encourages us, challenges us with verse 8 to persevere and to keep praying. In order to remain firmly rooted in the faith until Jesus returns, it is essential for us as God's elect children to have a lifestyle of persistent prayer. The only question is, will we? Will we give evidence of our faith by having a lifestyle of persistent prayer? Will that lifestyle of persistent prayer propel us through times of mistreatment and hardship, when we are discouraged and on the cusp of despair? Will we engage in prayer in the times when we just want to give up? When Jesus returns, verse 8 tells us, he wants to find a praying people. Is that what he will find in us when he returns? A praying people? At the end of the day, the question is not whether or not God will be faithful. The question is whether we will be. As we close our time together today, I have found the Lord's Prayer to be of great help to me when it comes to thinking about how to pray when I see and experience mistreatment and injustice. We know that this world doesn't yet function the way God intended So Jesus, when he taught us to pray, included the section, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer because we want earth to function as it currently does in heaven. We long for all things to be right and beautiful and functional. We long for Jesus to come back and to make all things right. It's to that end that we now pray. So will you pray with me? I'll pray first and then we'll close together by praying the Lord's Prayer. It should be up on the screen too. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray (laughs) that you would help us to be people of persistent prayer. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We are unable to do this on our own. We're We're unable to keep on keeping on. We need the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, overflowing in us, so that, Lord, when we see and when we experience injustice and mistreatment and things the way they're not to be, that we would first come to you as our only real tool that can bring about change, prayer, that you are the one who will bring about that change. And so, Lord, help us as we relate to, to friends and to siblings and coworkers and landlords and bosses and spouses and all the people, all the relationships we have where we may experience this, Lord, I pray that you would remind us to bend the knee and come to you as your elect child, knowing that you love us, that you hear us, and that you act on our behalf. And Lord, we eagerly await the day that you return to make all things new Oh, Lord, I can't wait for that day. Would you come quickly? Lord, we need you and we love you. And now, Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.